two Sundays ago, I introduced this on and off series of reflections on Song of Songs. Um, this is a book of love poems, and it's titled Song, and, uh, Song of Songs by the first two words of the book. Uh, they mean the song of all songs, the best of songs. Um, some people immediately find it awkward when you start talking about this book. Uh, someone was telling me a couple weeks ago that when they were growing up in the church, they would huddle in the back with their friends and they would secretly read Song of Songs and giggle to themselves during the church service. So look, you don't even have to hide. We're doing it in the broad open this morning. Um, also, if this is awkward for you, Katie brought to my attention, I'm doing this today on a Sunday where my mother-in-law and my brother and sister-in-law are all here, friends. I mean, come on. If it's we can handle this. It's all right. Now, we started a couple Sundays toward the end of the book because the end of it holds a key to the rest of it. Um, it also, many times people would say that this is just a book for married couples. And this end of it tells us that that's not all that it's about. This is a book for the church, for all of God's people, that you read it in the presence of Christ. So the gospel passage we just read Jesus it says that he interpreted to them, and some people surmise that this is a man and a woman, a husband and a wife walking there on that day in Luke, and they're sad because they cannot find Christ. He was crucified, and even his body, it seems to be lost. And Jesus, it says that he interprets to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. So this book, Yes, it's about a husband and wife, but it is about more than just a husband and wife. It is about the Lord himself. So at the end, we hear these words, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. This is the woman saying to the man, let me take possession of you. Let me take ownership of you. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. And this is the only place that God's name is mentioned in the song. And even here, it's mentioned in this very poetic, elusive sort of way. This is what poetry does. It sort of teases us with the meanings. But it speaks here to the source of love and passion between a man and a woman, between the church and Christ himself. The source of passionate devotion and desire between them, between us and Jesus Christ, is the flame of Yahweh himself, the God who appeared as a consuming fire in the burning bush and led the children of Israel by a flame in the night through the wilderness, the God whose spirit appeared on his disciples as tongues of fire, and then he set them ablaze to announce the good news of Christ and his salvation to the world. So the man and woman of these poems are passionately committed to one another in love, and their love is fueled by the flame of Yahweh. And this is how any love, true love in the world, is to be fueled by the flame of Yahweh. Today I want to show you one of several places in the song where the man or the woman describes and delights in the features of the other. So in two places, the man details features of the woman. And in another place, the woman details features of the man. And this is a form of poetry, sort of like we have haiku, in ancient cultures, they were called wasifs. Everyone say wasif. This is a kind of love poetry where the other walks down and details the features of the other. 
And I told you the first Sunday that this is going to remain PG. And I am trying to stick to that. So we're not going to explore all these poems. Scott said the most racy thing that's going to be said today when he read the passage. So. Suffice it to say, though, if you ever thought that the Bible was prudish, these poems remove all doubt about that. Seriously, humans are the ones who can be prudish. What we struggle with as human beings is bringing God into a picture of intimacy that includes no shame. That's what we struggle with. It's believing that God can be present with an intimacy and be pleased. And that's what I want to draw out this morning. So most cultures have love poetry. This is close to the center of what it means to be human, to love. But what's unique about Christian faith is the way that this poetry fits within the larger story about love and what it means to be fully human, what it takes to be fully human. So this is the bedrock issue within this poetry. What does it take to be fully human, to fully live as a man or as a woman? And one thing that it takes to be fully human is to live without shame, to live without shame. So these poems present us with a man and a woman who share their entire selves with one another. And in doing that, they're without shame. They take us back to the story of creation. Remember Adam delighted in his wife Eve and he spoke poetically of her. This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The writer glosses on their willing vulnerability. The man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Being clothed or unclothed in the Bible, you, you need to be aware of this. It's often more than just a physical matter. It's emotional and it's spiritual too. It can speak to physical or spiritual safety or a sense of deep vulnerability. And it does this with more than just people. Think about this, the analogies, the metaphors that we use about human nakedness compared to even a land or a country. So if a land is stripped in war, it is laid bare. It is naked and exposed for all to see. This is a place of vulnerability, of exposure. And so here, the first humans are unclothed, but they're safe as they live in the presence of God and under the gaze of one another. They trust one another. They're at peace with one another. In fact, the way that the story is told, it's as if they don't even know that they're unclothed. When, when sin occurs, which I'm about to speak to, it says they knew that they were naked. It, all of a sudden, they came into an awareness that they didn't even have before. So this sense of safe vulnerability, of being unashamed, it suddenly changes. They rebel and they become aware of their nakedness in a way that makes them want to cover it up. Now, th this is so fascinating. They didn't have mirrors. So what was this like? Most of us intuitively understand the critical lens through which we look at ourselves, whether it's our physical bodies or our inner selves. And whether it's only perception or not, 
we assume that others look at us through that same critical lens with a merciless assessment of our flaws, whether they're physical, emotional, whatever part of our makeup they may be. Now, from here on out in the Bible, nakedness takes on a negative quality. It becomes connected to a sense of vulnerability, shame, exploitation, and exposure. And this is where the song is a contrast to so much of the biblical story. Marriage still holds the possibility for a safe vulnerability, freedom from the merciless assessment of the world. None of us would say these sorts of things to ourselves, would we? You are all together beautiful, my love. Does anyone look in the mirror and say this? Maybe teenagers. <laughs> but you grow out of it. We never completely trust ourselves to say this about ourselves. And if we do, there are other problems. <laughs> but we all want for someone else to be able to say it and it to be close to the truth. If we're wondering the whole time when someone else says this to us, if they're lying, what flaws they really see, we can never be at peace. Now, it would be easy to argue that in our culture, we don't struggle with shame over nakedness or sexuality any longer. I was reading a writer this week. He cheekily said that um, the, the fig leaf has fallen and no one has gasped. Christianity is sometimes blamed for creating shame around these topics. And currently, as a society, we are trying to emerge out of shame through a greater authenticity to self. If you have an iPhone, your calendar has likely told you that it's Pride Month. And pride is part of a larger movement that's been going on for a very long time. And this movement says that we have repressed our sexuality, that this is harmful, and in expressing it authentically, our shame will be healed. Now, there are, there are many layers to this. Just like Paul said in Ephesians, this is a great mystery. There are so many layers. But I want to ask this question. Is it true that authenticity to ourselves will enable us to leave shame behind us? Will pride replace shame? That brings us to a specific part of the poem. This is one thing that it means and one thing it takes to be fully human, to live without shame. This is required if we're to become fully human. We must get to a place where we can live without shame. But another thing that it takes to be tr become truly human is to be praised as flawless. So as I said, there are three of these poems in the song where the man or the woman praise one another's features. They start at the head or at the feet and they work their way up or down accordingly. And in this first one, the man starts at the woman's eyes and he describes seven features of her body and seven being symbolic of wholeness and perfection in the scriptures, right? Now, some modern writers, I was laughing as Scott was reading, some modern writers have said that surely this is a joke, that this can't be a beautiful woman if her hair is like a flock of goats and her teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes which bear twins. <laughs> really? Is this a beautiful woman? I can't tell. 
Now that, that by the way, means that she has all her teeth and that they're straight. The flock of shorn ewes coming up as twins, all her teeth are there, which in a society that didn't have dentistry, this is a wonderful thing and a, perhaps a rare thing. Now, all love poetry has descriptions that are rooted in their time and in their place. And some descriptions aren't going to fly for us. You can't use this, this in these days. But the meaning is still obvious enough. The, the woman is captivatingly beautiful to this man. And he summarizes her beauty in this way. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. I've been meditating on this line this week. It is so wonderful. I, I want you to forgive me for being a bit cynical, but I, I want to ask, really? <laughs> no flaw at all? How long do you think they've been together? <laughs> how long, how long will he be able to say this and mean it? Really? Is this poetry true, true or is it just romanticism? I realize I may not be the best romantic, I, I, but this exposes the problem with romance that exists by itself or sexuality that is based only on authenticity to ourselves. None of us are that flawless. None of us are, no matter how beautiful we are. None of us are worthy of this comment. You are altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in you. None of us deserve it. Even those most flawless on the outside don't remain that way, though we do have this growing industry that seeks to create that perpetual perfection. Authenticity to self only pushes us deeper into our flawedness. Our culture may appear on the outside to be increasingly free from shame, but here is the reality. Shame is only creeping into deeper and darker places. They may be able to take off their clothes and not feel ashamed. But if someone looks into their soul, they hide. We all do. That said, there is something that is absolutely essential in what the man says to his bride. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Don't we want someone to be able to say that to us? Don't we? Can this be true? Can someone say this to us and it be true? Can one spouse say that to another if they're married for decades? How blind does love have to be? <laughs> also, what if a person is not married? What if a person loses a spouse? Part of being human, and here's what we need to hear. Part of being human is the need to be seen and described in this way, regardless of what situation of life you're in. You are altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in you. But again, no one writes these poems about themselves. So who is going to speak these words? To an unmarried person, to a person who's lost a spouse, to a child. Song of Songs, as lovely as it is, does not exist by itself. It exists 
in relationship to the rest of the story of scripture, in relationship to the God who we learn about in scripture. The concept of being flawed or not flawed comes out of a relationship to God. Wash me, David says to God in his flawedness after adultery, and I shall be whiter than snow. Created me a clean heart, O oh God. God works with flawed people to make them flawless. God sends a flawless sacrifice to chase after his bride and return her to him. He cleanses his bride through the waters of baptism so that he might present her to himself in splendor without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. A man who tells his wife, you are altogether beautiful, my love, there is no flaw in you, is only parroting what Christ says to his bride, the church. He's only telling his bride what Christ has done. He's only believing what Christ has accomplished. These are not just romantic words. These are religious words. And this is one of the reasons that sex and romance devoid of God so quickly becomes false worship. Because this is a realm where the spiritual and the physical are absolutely wed together. In the uh, marriage services um, years ago uh, in the Anglican church, the traditional language that the, the uh, spouses would say to one another is, with my body, I be worship. It was an acknowledgement that marriage is absolutely holy ground. That it is so closely connected to God that it is nearly an act of worship in itself. So marriage in itself can be a place where the words of God becomes, are spoken over us. Where we learn to better listen to the things that God says about us instead of the things that we say about ourselves. And this overflows the marriage into relationship with children. So all children need to learn to hear the words of God, that they are beloved. Not that they'll find their freedom from shame and belovedness through authenticity to themselves. Instead, that in the waters of baptism, God cleanses them, makes them pure, and they are then able to find their self in him. One of the last words to a song that we sang this morning was, all our longings find attainment when to self we gladly die. And this is true in every relationship. So whether we're married or not, whether we are young or old or even widowed, to be truly human, we need to continually hear these words spoken over us and receive them as the truest parts of who we are. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. The most important place that any of us hear this is not in marriage. It's in the presence of our creator who becomes our redeemer in Christ. When we confess our sin and receive the mercy of Christ, this is what he says to us. So in a little bit in our service, if you kneel or if you sit and you begin to confess your sin, you need to know that this is what Christ says to you. You are altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in you because I have cleansed you with my blood.
when we come to his table and receive his body and his blood that are offered to us to make us clean, make us clean. when you receive the bread in your hands and you take the wine, Christ is saying to you, you are altogether beautiful. I have made you clean. There's no flaw in you. In his presence, in the presence of Christ, we can again be naked and unashamed. And if you're not a Christian, Jesus wants to speak these words over you. He wants to, you to receive this identity into yourself. It's not one that you can earn through your authenticity. It's one you receive as you allow Christ to speak it over you. He wants you to admit your flawedness, not so that he can beat you down, but so he can restore you. Uh, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. This is what we become when we submit ourselves to the gaze of Christ. He is the faithful husband who never withholds these words of adoration and praise. May our marriages be places that embody this love. And may Church of the Lamb be a place that this love is shared. When we struggle to believe this about ourselves, may this be a place that people can remind us that it's true, where Christ's words can be spoken over us and we can live into the beauty that he's given us. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.